Hi, my name is Geraldo Cadava, and this is Writing Latinos, a new podcast from Public Books. The Latino story has never been written in full. There are so many experiences to document and share, but Latinos everywhere have written their stories and the stories of their communities with a sense of great urgency. Sometimes their narratives are sweeping, sometimes they're particular. In Writing Latinos, we'll talk to Latino authors about how their writing illuminates Latino experiences. Latino scholars, memoirists, novelists, journalists, and others have used the written word as their medium for making a statement about Latinidad. Some of our episodes will be nerdy and academic, while others might be more playful and lighthearted. But all will offer thoughtful reflections on Latino identity and how writing conveys some of its meanings. We'll publish a new episode every two weeks. If you like what you hear, like and subscribe to Writing Latinos wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the show. I am so delighted to be talking with Natalia Molina today, who is a distinguished professor of American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Molina is also the award-winning author of three books, including How Race is Made in America, Fit to be Citizens, and most recently, A Place at the Nayarit. That's the book we'll be talking about today, plus uh, lots of other stuff related to Latino writing, politics, and identity. Thank you for joining us, Natalia. It's my pleasure, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And thank you for writing such a beautiful book. It was a, first of all, I mean, a wonderful tribute to your family and their kind of extended circle and very wide influence that I knew nothing about. So it was really nice for me to someone who's known you professionally for a while to get to know a little bit more about your backstory. The first thing I want to ask you about is just about your grandmother. You know, you wrote in the very beginning of the book that you never met her. I think she passed maybe in the very late 1960s, early 1970s, and you're born in the early 1970s. I don't feel like I'm dating you. I feel like you mentioned this in the book, so I'm not telling any secrets, but you never met her in person, but obviously she's a, a figure that loomed large for you in your life. So I'm wondering, you know, just from the stories you collected about her, what are the lessons that she taught you, even though you never met about Latino history, a life well-lived, a character, things like that? I think a lot of us grow up hearing about our grandparents. They passed before we were born. You know, your grandmother always said, your grandfather liked. And for me, even without hearing those um, pieces of history from my relative's mouth, I grew up surrounded by the people that she had immigrated. She used the restaurant to immigrate people, mm -hmm. to provide them a letter of support in their visa application that said that they would have a place to live and a place to work if they came to Los Angeles. So I think one of the biggest things I learned just through osmosis was how important community was, that that community would hold you in, in whenever you needed it. One of the first times I really looked around and noticed that community was at the anniversary of my uncle's death. We had a rosario and we would pray the, you know, pray the rosary for nine days, we would do a novena. And, you know, it's not the kind of thing people want to show up for. People like to show up for parties. Mm -hmm. um, and especially after he had passed so long before. And yet I looked around that room and I thought all these people that work, that are here either worked or went to the Nayari or our relatives. And mm -hmm. most of them, even if they weren't 
blood relatives I thought of as relatives. Many I called uncle or aunt or thought of as cousins. I'd grown up playing with the kids of the of the workers. So one was um, the importance of family, the family you make as well. I think another thing, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is sometimes the conditions that we want aren't there in terms of, you know, for her it was Latino representation, Latino spaces, Mexican food. And so she created her own. I'm not saying that she could just do so completely free of restrictions. You know, she she mm-hmm. was living in Los Angeles in post-war World War II, that where there was racial segregation. Um, but, you know, she opened a Mexican restaurant in which the food very much reflected where she was from in Mexico. And that she did not try to whitewash for American palates. And she didn't try to whitewash her indigenous heritage either. You know, she named the restaurant the Nayarit. Mm -hmm. So the Nayarit is an indigenous word from the Huichol people of the state of Nayarit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the other Mexican restaurants at the time, you know, El Coyote, El Cholo, wonderful restaurants that are still around but that very much trade off that kind of Spanish fantasy past Calmex kind of food, you know, yeah. you know, the taco enchilada plate, <laughs> that kind of thing. And she had some of that for sure. She really wanted a, a wide clientele, but she always kept food from her state there. And because she named the restaurant after the state of Nayarit and people didn't know what it was or even how to pronounce it. Um, she would then have to explain it to them and the workers would explain it and it would spark a conversation and it would uh, help form community there. Yeah, I love that. And I have to say that when I was reading, I could feel my taste buds salivating when you would write about the machaca and I had never heard of tamales with shrimp inside of them. So I have to ask, was she very protective of recipes or did she pass down to family members recipes that your family still uses? She was definitely not protective of recipes because what she did was she trained everybody uh, to make her food. So all the people that she helped to immigrate from Mexico, whether they were family members or friends of the family, she would train them first as a busboy, busgirl, then as a waiter, waitress, some to work in the kitchen. And some of these that became her head cooks had never cooked before. And, you know, Restaurants are dangerous places. Kitchens are hot. Knives are sharp. There are blind corners. Um, it's really hard work. And some of the employees that worked at the Nayadi went on to open their own restaurants, including using some of her recipes. You know, we just went to um, Ramon Baragan's 92nd birthday. And for those in LA, one of the restaurants that they that is beloved is Baragan's that has also since closed. But that was also on Sunset Boulevard and Echo Park, like my grandmother's restaurant. And the menu featured his favorite dishes, including these costillas, these ribs. And mm. those were the ribs yeah. that my grandmother used to make. So I, I always feel connected when I go to those places because I know that was the food she cooked at her restaurant. And I know it must taste the same because she was very exacting in her standards and everything had to be done exactly the way that she wanted. So every time I go to those restaurants, that food tastes exactly the same. And Natalia was your mother's mother, right? Yes, my mom's, my mom's mom who adopted her. Okay. And so your mom could also kind of vouch for the authenticity of Barragans or something like that. I mean, she could say that this tastes so much like mom's cooking. 
Oh, can you imagine if it didn't, you know, you'd hear yeah. it, you know, Latinas, well, this isn't like this or so-and-so <laughs> makes it better. So not only could she vouch, but I know all of Echo Park would have spoken about it if it wasn't up to par. <laughs> yeah. And one thing I couldn't quite tell, did the, I know that she got sick in 1969 and passed quickly, but did the business fold pretty quickly after her passing or was there an effort to kind of keep it going for a little bit without her? There was an effort to keep it going for a little bit, but my grandmother's strength was that she knew what she was good at. She was a wonderful businesswoman. She knew how to hire people for things she couldn't do. Like she would hire an attorney and that was the attorney that would both write the the letters of employment to help secure visas. Um, it was also the attorney that would go and help any of the workers that needed help, such as when my aunt got a speeding ticket. That's a pretty routine thing to go to court for, but she actually sent her attorney. She was not going to you know, take any chances that my aunt would be discriminated against. You know, this is LA at a time where Mexicans couldn't sit on grand juries. So, yeah. you know, she hired a real estate broker, to make sure that she got the best location for the restaurant for the price that she could afford. She did a lot of things. So she knew what she wasn't good at. And one of them was she was not good at working with the public. And so um, after she passed, my mother, who was not as great with the cooking and business part, and also, you know, didn't have the partner, the formidable partner of my grandmother. And she got married and she had me. And so she ended up selling the restaurant a few years later, but my mother was the front of house person, even in the interviews that I did, you know, older men, as I interviewed them about what it was like to work there, or what it was like to be a customer there would smile and say, that was your mom. She was quite a looker. <laughs> you said you could still see the Nayarit sign on sunset. Does that mean that there's a new business there that has decided to keep the sign up? Yes. My mom sold it to a couple of Cuban brothers. And then after that, I think they sold it to, I think, a Guatemalan business owner. And then it turned into a club over 20 years ago called the Echo. And that's part of the kitsch is maintaining that kind of sign. And yeah. I think for a lot of people, the restaurant, what has been valuable about the book for them is this hidden history of Los Angeles, hmm. the way that we don't know the history of spaces like this because our archives don't tell these stories. These mom and pop restaurants, these little businesses um, told you know, what I call urban anchors, you know, communities made for the community by the community. And so this allows them to kind of delve into that history of an immigrant space, of an immigrant urban anchor, as well as gets at the palimpsest of history that Los Angeles can be. Right. So it sounds like you grew up kind of immersed in this community. I mean, it, the feeling I got while reading the book is that the Nayari was far from just a restaurant. It was almost like this big rollicking community with so many things going on in it. Is that how is that the kind of community that you grew up in as well? I mean, did, did you grow up in a kind of big rollicking community that the Nayari was a part of? Absolutely. And that yeah. was what I wanted the book to convey. I think, um, you know, there, there were many moments where I thought of writing this book or perhaps not of writing the book, but I thought that's not my experience when I read somebody else's book or heard somebody else's talk. 
I don't think it always reflected the history of uh, Mexican women who, again, many times their stories aren't in the archive um, of Latino entrepreneurs, as you know, Mm -hmm. of multi-ethnic areas. And so I wanted to get at that in the book. And one of those moments was when I went to talk on hometown associations and hometown associations, many times we start telling that history post-1965 and especially 1980s and beyond. Ana Manyan does a beautiful job in, in her book on undocumented lives. But it all, hometown associations are often led by men and mm-hmm. many of the officers are men. And there's a way in which when we start the narrative there, you don't get all the work that led up to it. And for my grandmother, she was one of those, what I call in the book, a placemaker. Even mm-hmm. without an association, she was making community. Yeah. She was immigrating people. She was integrating them into the business. If they were young enough, she encouraged them to learn English. And then those folks had the opportunity to then go off and work somewhere else if they didn't like the restaurant business. That was the advantage of making sure that they immigrated with their green card. It wasn't that she was anti-undocumented and she did hire undocumented immigrants as well, but she was all about making opportunities and making sure that people had cultural capital as Mm -hmm. well. So this is how you grew up with a lot of these stories. It's one thing for all of us to hear the stories our ancestors tell us about their families, but then it's another thing to decide to write a book about it. So was there a moment or series of moments or a slow evolution where you thought, I need to write a book about these things? I can answer this question a couple of different ways. And that's because my memory about it sometimes fails me. Mm -hmm. But luckily, I'm a good historian and I have archival evidence. So I think one moment is me having taught both Latino studies and urban studies for a good 14 years at UC San Diego. And again, appreciating the literature that was out there, but often feeling, I don't think my story is reflected here. I would read about LGBTQ studies and I would read about Latino studies. And those two didn't always come together. And yet I knew through this rollicking community that that you mentioned, that there were you know, a, a sizable amount of gay men in that community. I knew that most of the histories I've read about in Latino studies took place in ethnic enclaves. And here, this restaurant was in what I call you know, a geographic crossroads. Mexicans interacting with Cubans, for example, mm-hmm. and what that meant, kind of what it meant to be pan Latino before there was the 1965 Immigration Act. And I knew from that then that people could form all kinds of bonds outside of just having a common origin story. And so that was the main reason I started writing the book. And and it didn't start as a book, right? I thought maybe it'll be a chapter. I'd been invited to give a talk and I knew they were going to publish it. And so I thought, well, it has to be something original. I just finished my last book, How Race is Made in America. I'll try it. And it felt like I was stuffing it, all this history in there, because as I would research one thing, like when people would say, oh, the radio announcer, uh, Martin Becerra, he would then 
announced your grandmother's restaurant when he was at the Million Dollar Theater at events on a Saturday night and everybody from the Million Dollar Theater would then want to come to the restaurant. Well, then it meant I had to research Martin. I had to research Spanish language radio stations, the Million Dollar Theater. And so it just kept getting bigger. I think the other thing was the response to it immediately was just so big. And that's because I also talk about gentrification in the book and how gentrification is not just economic, but cultural, that these stories, once we're gone, who will tell these stories? They're not written up in books. And so I wrote it in a way that I hope other people can use it to tell their stories. It becomes clear so quickly that this is much more than a book that's about a restaurant. I mean, I was amazed by all of the different threads that you follow. There are stories about immigration, sexuality, Latino Hollywood, because people like Rita Moreno were at the restaurant. And I loved all the stuff about Marlon Brando and the Nayari wallet that he carried with him everywhere. It's amazing. So there are so many different threads and it's clear the restaurant, I don't know, maybe it's too much to say that the restaurant was at the center of all this, but it certainly pulled together a lot of these threads. So this is just what the restaurant was, but then what challenges did that pose to you as a writer trying to simultaneously pull lots of different threads together and write a narrative? Well, that's the other way that I can get into the question about, you know, when did I think about writing the book? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I did shy away from it for a long time. Um, I think one reason for several reasons, including that it's a story with no archives, <laughs> that we don't have any archives on them. Let me write a book about this place without an archive. <laughs> so I thought I could at least write a talk. And if mm -hmm. it's good enough, they'll publish it. And so I had a couple of magazines and newspaper articles that had written up the Nayari. I knew that I could interview the former workers, including family members and some customers. And I thought that'll get me enough to write this. But there's that great quote, you're driving with your headlights on and you can only see as far as those headlights reach. But then once you get there, you can see that much further and it kept going. Um, but what I didn't get for a long time was more voices of the people in that community. And I needed research to also um, confirm what I was hearing in the oral interviews. And then one day it hit me, oh, I had this image of my aunt, my tia Chayo, sitting on her porch in Echo Park, reading El Echo de Nayari, this newspaper yeah. from her home state that she got sent to her um, sometimes in bundles because they would get a few. And then when she would receive it, you knew not to bother her. And it just kept her tethered to the state of Nayari, even though she had no plans of ever moving back. And once a year, they would publish this anniversary issue, which was like a glossy magazine. Mm -hmm. And everyone I knew, and then everyone in my interviews mentioned that they still had those glossy magazines. It's kind of like keeping a yearbook or something. And they kept copies of this newspaper in Mexico. And so I went and did research and 20 years of looking through these records. And yeah. through it, you had all the stories of the Nayaritas. And then all of a sudden, the project went from having not enough research to having way too much research. And for a while, I was like, am I going to write the history of Nayarit in Los Angeles? I think one of the things that made it unique was that it did have the nightlife, 
but then it could also be a restaurant for your Sunday meal. It was the kind of place that your entire family went to on a Sunday. You would get dressed up. People said you could speak in Spanish. You could make the sign of the cross. And then because it was in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and accessible, even for people that didn't have the resources, they could access the Nayeri. In one of my other interviews, the person said that their family couldn't afford to go there, but their dad would go with, you know, their big pot, uh, just like you do in Mexico and get it filled with menudo on Sunday, which was a specialty and get a big stack of homemade tortillas to take home to his wife and his other children. And so his wife could still have the night off from cooking, but have something that felt authentic and, and nourishing to them. Writing Latinos is brought to you by Public Books, an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can find us at publicbooks.org. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-B-O-O-K-S dot org. To donate to Public Books, visit publicbooks.org backslash donate. Are there restaurants like it in LA right now? I mean, I, I remember going to a place called Gelaguetza a few years ago. I remember it being a very big restaurant where a lot of different events could happen. You could have bands, you could have a lot of people eating at the same time. It made me wonder how big Nayari was. Was it big like that and kind of a space where a lot of different things could happen at the same time? Well, it's an honor to be compared to the Gelaguetza restaurant because I I do think that is the kind of restaurant that it was that it symbolized, right? The Gelaguetza, it's a Uh, as we can tell from the name, is a Oaxacan restaurant. It's a family restaurant. It's now being run by the daughter. and They even have a cookbook. And so I really love that they've been able to put their story out there and their recipes. It's a kind of restaurant that grew with the growth of the Oaxacan community here in Los Angeles. Those kinds of spaces just didn't exist before. And they, they are rare to find because there are other wonderful restaurants that that still have the the food but you know it's so hard to start a restaurant nowadays in terms of the capital and in los angeles with the rent um and the nayari like the galagetza offered many things so it had space right because that's the other thing yeah yeah you need space you need space to um have your baptismal party there you need space to have a dance floor my grandmother got a liquor license. And that was this huge thing because you have to go through so much screening, go to public meetings and learn what it is to run a bar. They didn't know mm-hmm. how to do that. It was her and my mom and neither of them really drank. And so my, my she sent my mom to bartending school, a bartending school owned by another Nayarita, Tomas Lau. And that bartending school, her, her partner was James Earl Ray. Yeah, that was an amazing story. It was that time that James Earl Ray lived in Los Angeles for a short time. And then he left and assassinated MLK. And Tomas Lau offered the only picture they had of James Earl Ray, Mm. um, which was when he was graduating and he was getting his bartending certificate. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is people that started their own restaurants they had so little capital to start. Right. You could never do something like that now, you know, mm-hmm. where they would rent somewhere and start off with a few customers. And 
all the people from the Nayeti would visit each other's restaurants to try to give each other business. Mm -hmm. So also spatially that you could have more than one Mexican restaurant in the area, right? Right. You know, Baragans opened a few blocks east of the Nayeti. Other people went on to open La Via Tosco and Chavo and Conquistador. And that was just a mile and a mile half west from the Nayarit. Mm -hmm. And they all did something a little bit different. Baragan started with more American food because the owner of Ramon Baragan married Grace Baragan, who is Mexican-American and had also worked at a cafe. El Chavo and El Conquistador were gay urban anchors, gay Latino urban anchors, they all offered something to make them distinct. Yeah, I was curious about that because your grandmother gave seed money to a lot of these restaurants to open up nearby. And I think you mentioned the book that they all opened on the same street on Sunset. So I was thinking, did she encourage a way of thinking about these new businesses in kind of non-competitive terms? Because you would almost think that the people who were opening the restaurants would say, Go ahead and open your restaurant, but make sure it's like two, three, four miles away so that it doesn't compete with mine. But it sounds like these were all on the same strip. So is that just a different way of thinking about it? I think they were far enough away that mm -hmm. it wasn't that much of an issue. Baragans was the closest, but that was partly why they had an American menu, even though my grandmother <laughs> didn't explicitly say like, don't take my entire menu. They wanted to show some things that were different. Mm -hmm. Um, La Via Tosco, it's at the uh, kind of gateway into Hollywood. And so they were really trying to attract a white clientele as well. And El Chavo and Conquistador, they got their liquor licenses right away. And mm -hmm. they they went for the margarita crowd. And I will say they nailed it. This might be kind of an unfair question because I'm asking you to think about restaurants and Florida and Chicago and Arizona, but it, it did strike me that this book could have been written about so many restaurants. I remember growing up in Tucson and hearing about places like Minidito or El Charro, these family-owned restaurants that had been in the city for 50 or 60 years, or Cafe Versailles in Miami or Nuevo León here in Chicago. So on the one hand, El Nayarit is just really fortunate to have a kick-ass historian who's invested in telling their story. And maybe all of these other restaurants, if they had uh, historians like Natalia Molina to tell their story, we would see a much bigger picture of how restaurants were really central to our communities all over the place. Um, so I don't know how much you know about these individual places, but you know, what of what you studied do you think could be exportable to understanding the role that restaurants played in other communities as well? And maybe what, hope, what wouldn't? I hope all of it. Um, you know, this isn't my first rodeo. This is my third monograph. And so I really wrote it so that other people could copy that model. Mm -hmm. I'm in the process of developing K through 12 curriculum because I want people to tell their story. That's the main yeah. thing I want out of this, this book. When you're from California in the fourth grade and in different grades, you have to do your California history. Yeah, the it's missions. The missions. Yeah. Like what? And then yeah. we don't even talk, <laughs> have this critical lens. So I would love for one of the exercises that people do for their California history is to tell the story of their urban anchor. It may be a restaurant, it may be a cafe, in my neighborhood here in Pasadena, there's a large Armenian 
community. I want to tell the story of Sam's Cleaners. I love Mm -hmm. them. (laughs) I've learned so much about the Armenian diaspora from them. That's the main reason that I wrote the book. I want people to understand that it's important to tell your story and how to do it, even if you don't have archives. I have a newsletter. You can see it on my website, nataliamolinaphd.com. And so I've started to interview people on how they do this. One of the things people always ask me is, are you going to do a tour of Echo Park? And I'd love to do that. So I interviewed one of my graduate students, Arabella Delgado, who's amazing and has done tours for the Boyle Heights Museum. I'm going to interview Virginia Espino, who is one of the leading oral historians of our time. Virginia is one of the um, documentarians who brought us Nomas Bebes, Mm. which looks at the four sterilizations at LA County hospitals, work which we know about through her oral interviews. And so I'm going to interview her on how you do an oral interview if you're not a historian. I know not everybody's going to be a historian. I know not everybody's going to write a book, but maybe they could write a kick-ass Instagram post. Maybe they could do something for the website of these businesses. Maybe they could include something on their Yelp page. Maybe if you have a class of 34th graders and they each do this and then they geotag them on Google Maps. And now we have this whole other understanding of the city, not as city planners design it, but as actually people use it. That's what we need. We need to write ourselves into history. That would be amazing, Natalia. I hope that that happens. And I hope that there are state legislators and educators who are on board with this program. I think your work is now in a growing field of food studies that I'm sure I see it most in Latino history, but I'm sure it's a much broader phenomenon than that. I know Matt Garcia recently edited a book and Lori Flores is working in this field and Mireya Losa is working in this field. So um, I guess when I hear your earlier answers about how you came to the book, it wasn't necessarily through the field of food studies, but nevertheless, here you've landed and you're entering conversations about food studies. So I'm wondering, what do you think food studies is all about right now? One of the things that food studies gives us is joy. To be able to share this part of the culture and show the empowerment of people growing their own food because it's not sold in the markets, representing themselves, really writing themselves into the story, into the city, being placemakers. All of that brings so much joy. I was recently a judge for a tortilla contest. Yes, uh, yes. KCRW with the LA Times columnist, Gustavo Arellano, and the implacable food expert, writer, chef, everything, Evan Kleinman. And as part of that, Gustavo interviewed me for it, ended up writing a little piece. And then the day of the tortilla contest, I thought, okay, well, sure, this is going to be fun. I was so wrong. And I should have known this as a historian and as someone who writes about food, that food was a way for people to show their cultural pride, to take joy Mm -hmm to access their memories that they never see represented out there. We make up 4% of speaking roles on the screen. You don't get a very nuanced examination of Latinos still today, even in 2022. And so for people to be like, wow, you're centering on the tortilla. And by doing that, you're talking about the history of 
the places that made it and showing the diversity of Latino culture that some were from Mexico, others were Tex-Mex, others were from Northern Mexico, which then you start seeing the regional difference. People were so excited to the point where I would go to the food booths and try to get something to eat in between rounds of judging and people I'd never met were just stopping me and just saying, Natalia, let me tell you about how I would have a tortilla after school and how I would prepare it and what it meant to me. And Natalia, let me tell you about making tortillas with my grandmother. So I think that is a big part of it. That's and amazing. I think, yeah. I think the flip side of it is I think we're tired of still not seeing ourselves represented. I think when you mentioned Matt Garcia, Lori Flores, Mireya, I don't know because I've never asked them, but they already wrote these formidable books mm -hmm. talking about the way that Latinos suffered and toiled under these conditions to put food on our tables yes. in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And wait, we're still doing that today? Mm -hmm. You know, during the pandemic, we, many of us got to work from home and we talked about essential workers and we know that many of those people were undocumented. And then when it came time to giving out vaccines or COVID tests or anything like that, we're like, oh no, undocumented people, they don't get to have those resources. Like really, they got to put food on our tables and deliver food to us and be the ones that worked in restaurants and small spaces so that we could go pick it up by ordering through our apps on Uber Eats, and now they don't get to have a vaccine? Are mm -hmm. you kidding me? And so I think to me, food studies is also a way of saying, all those people out there who like to call themselves foodies and like to take pictures of their food, this is the other side of it. And we need to reckon with this. Absolutely. I think that's part of where the question comes from, because a lot of the people doing the work in food studies now are people who had written first books about labor and agriculture, and then have made the move to writing about food. And they're closely related things. But yes, in some ways, food studies is a way to put the labor and exploitation that so many take for granted right in front of you. The final thing I want to ask is something I want to ask Everyone I talk to, we're all in the field of Latino history, but we're also Latinos and have a lot of thoughts about the national conversations about Latinos right now and Latino identity. So I'm wondering, what are some of your thoughts about the state of the national conversation about Latinos right now? What are some of the things that you're paying attention to? And gosh, I'm trying to think of a more elegant way of putting this question. What does Latina, Latino, Latinx identity mean to you? But I think I'll just ask it like that because I can't think of a better way of asking it. I'll tell you what I'm thinking of these days. I think one of the things that writing this book did for me was focus not just on food studies, but food justice. Mm -hmm. And that has opened up a lot for me in terms of thinking about what it means to be Latino. So I donated the proceeds for this year of the book to an organization called No Us Without You. Mm -hmm. And I started because as I was launching the book or finishing the book, I forget which, we were in the middle of a pandemic. The press didn't want to release the book because of that. 
I was working from home. And then we also had these wildfires. And so I would see on the news, the way that those agricultural workers, many of whom were Latino, a lot of whom were indigenous. So even when the news was translated to them in Spanish, didn't know what was going on about the pandemic or the wildfires and how they were working in this cloud of orange smoke. And even though I don't live near those areas, it drifted down to my part of LA and you couldn't even like walk the dog. And there was this organization called Know Us Without You that said for all those workers that are out of work because of the pandemic and can't access food relief, we're going to provide food for them. And they pivoted very quickly. They started doing food giveaways as you know, just like a week or two after it was declared a pandemic. And so I recently went to give them the check, the donation check, and they were having a food drive and also a to toy drive. And we just started talking about like how much worse it's going to get, you know, Title 42 is going to be lifted. The moratorium on rent here is going to be lifted. And you just start thinking like, whether you are Latino or not, whether you do Latino studies or not, we all need to be invested in immigration debates, immigration histories to understand that better in homelessness and underhoused people because housing is getting more and more difficult in our cities and it's disproportionately affecting people of color. And so to me, it's a way of saying we need to put Latino studies, ethnic studies, just front and center and in the middle of conversations to see how all these issues look so differently from the margins. And I think it's a call that ethnic studies has been making since the 1970s, right? That kind of, you can't just add and stir, you actually have to look through this lens and think about intersectionality, but it's affecting our daily lives. We're not talking about history. We're not talking about academic issues. And so I think it only makes our work more urgent um, and it only makes me more grateful that so many of us are doing much more public facing work, whether it's writing op-eds, doing a podcast, just helping in every, any way we can so that people understand the urgency of these issues and don't just see history as a run-up or a backstory yeah. to a contemporary issue. Amen to all of that. Thank you so much, Natalia. And thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Writing Latinos. We'd love to hear your suggestions for new books that we should be reading and talking about. Drop us a line at heraldo at publicbooks.org. That's G-E-R-A-L-D-O at publicbooks.org. This episode is brought to you by Public Books. It was produced and edited by Tasha Sandoval, our music is City of Mirrors by the Chicago-based band Dos Santos. I'm Gerardo Cadava. We'll see you again right here in two weeks. <laughs>